superlatives. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Lakes and iridescent blue, rugged peaks that sweep up to the sky, abundant wildlife, waterfalls, caves, deep canyons. It's almost drama overload. The Canadian Rocky Mountain Parks possess such exceptional natural beauty, they attract millions of visitors every year. But it wasn't always the case, of course. Long before the Trans-Canada Highway and the Canadian Pacific Railway opened up these mountains, Indigenous tribes like the Kootenai, Cree, and Blackfoot lived in these lands for centuries. Then came the European fur traders and prospectors and explorers looking for navigable routes to the Pacific. When the Intercontinental Railroad was completed in 1885, a wave of affluent aristocratic travelers followed. It was my great-grandfather and his three children. They were very much interested in railroads, and so they came to Vancouver because they were anxious to ride home on the newly completed uh, Canadian Pacific Railroad. I'm talking with Henry Vox, Jr. His great-grandfather, a Philadelphia lawyer and philanthropist, George Vox, Sr., were among the first to make the journey. And they stopped for a night at the Glacier House Hotel that was a CPR facility. Glacier House was kind of a rest stop. In those early days, trains couldn't tow dining cars because they added too much weight for an engine straining to climb a mountain pass. And they were uh, instantly captivated by the Great Glacier. By Great Glacier, he means what today is called the Illicillowoc Glacier. And they took some photographs of the glaciers and the younger brother, William, who was an uh, architect engineer, made a map of the tow of the that was in 1887. And they didn't come back for seven years. When they came back, they were shocked at how much the glacier had retreated. So they documented what they saw. They took measurements and lots of pictures. And then they came back. And then they came back again. For uh, 11 years and then two of them for another three years. And they made uh, scientifically based measurements thanks to William who knew how to make those measurements of the recession of the Great Glacier, the Illicillowoc Glacier, as well as photographs year in and year out. Unbeknownst to them, the siblings, Mary, George the Ninth, and William, the grand siblings as I call them, they were essentially becoming North America's first glaciologists. They had hard scientific evidence measurements that were made in what were certainly scientifically acceptable methods of the day and they worked on other glaciers as well. They were certainly among the first to discover that the glaciers on the North American continent were receding and that that recession was fairly widespread. For the next 14 years, they studied glacial movement and presented their findings to the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. Their captivatingly beautiful photographs were considered a breakthrough in the new field of glaciology, but don't call it art. I've always felt that what the siblings were doing was photography as art. The Vox family were Quakers who had come to America to escape religious persecution. And at that time, as I put it, the hard-nosed Quakers frowned on uh, the arts, including music, as being frivolous, but that to keep the hard-nosed Quakers off their back, they said, oh, we're just doing science. It was really art masked as science. So although they assiduously mapped and monitored the glaciers, what did they think was causing the retreat? Yeah, uh, I think they thought it was naturally occurring, and I, th I think it was well understood that um, 
there was a natural cycle to um, glacier accretion and glacier wasting, and I think those people knew that there had been a little ice age. Hmm. But it was, I think, generally known that since the little ice age, those glaciers were receding as a, as a matter of uh, natural causes, and I'm sure it never occurred to them. It had something to do with industrialization. Fast forward 100 years. I'm at the White Museum of the Canadian Rockies in Banff, Alberta, to see an exhibit by Henry Box Jr. I got the idea of going out and re-photographing uh, some of those images 100 years later. Looking at his images, they're, they're jarring before and after photos, taken from the exact same spot his family did a century before. And taking them wasn't easy. For starters, he had to learn black and white photography. And I didn't know much about black and white photography at the time. And also, some things had changed, like highways and structures being built that obscured the view. The growth of brush, the uh, abandonment of trails, the fact I couldn't walk across glaciers, and so forth. And some were just a trek because the glaciers had retreated so far. The Illisillowat Glacier that had got this whole thing started, the first time the family saw it in 1887, it was a 20-minute walk to the toe or terminus. Now it's a four-and-a-half-hour technical climb. The pictures are so arresting, I decided I want to see some of these glaciers for myself. From the White Museum, I drive west on a cloudless, gorgeous day on the Icefields Parkway, which parallels the Continental Divide. Somebody's heart. Rats, I'm losing signal once I get out of Banff. Okay, radio off. But it's a bit of a drive to the Athabasca Glacier, the largest ice body in the Canadian Rockies, which, if you want to see a glacier from the comfort of your car, this is the one for you. Or at least it used to be. It used to be that you could walk fairly directly from the highway right onto the glacier. That's Gary Clark, glaciologist from the University of British Columbia. He's been studying glaciers for about 45 years. So now, now you have to walk quite far to get to the glacier. Indeed, I start toward the glacier from the highway, and markers line the road like tombstones indicating where the glacier used to be. I worked on um, the Athabasca Glacier in uh, around summer of 65 or 66, um, working as a grad student. And um, it's, it's interesting. I think at that time we had no idea that um, the days of glaciers in the Rockies were numbered. He says it's thin by easily 50 meters since he was there. The thickness of these glaciers, it's one of the, the thicker ones. I think it might be two or 300 meters in some places. But um, if, you're, if you're thinning at um, something like a meter a year, it doesn't take very long to run out of ice. There's a real concern that by the end of this century, um, depending how, how vigorous we are about trying to control carbon um, dumping into the atmosphere through fossil fuel burning, that there won't be ice in the Rockies at all. So, what, so what's the impact? I mean, aside from there being beautiful, what would happen if they go away? In particular, Columbia Icefields feeds uh, three different oceans, um, the headwaters of three rivers that flow into the Pacific, the Arctic, and the Atlantic. One of the things that keeps the, the river um, supplied with water in the hot summer months like July and August of summers like this is glacier melt. And... Um, as soon as the glaciers are gone, you'll lose that. So there will be no water supply to, the, to those rivers for several months of the year. The other water supply is snowmelt and rainfall, and they stand to lose a lot of snowfall if the climate warms. It's a kind of double whammy. And here's another thing that might sound familiar to those of us in the western U.S. There are studies um, conducted at University of Alberta by a 
famous water scientist called David Schindler, and they suggest that the whole prairies were um, exceptionally wet throughout the 20th century relative to historical averages. So what we were experiencing as we settled uh, Western Canada was, in fact, a false abundance of water. Similar to what's being said about the Colorado River. So we could, can expect, irrespective of climate change, just the ordinary fluctuations, that um, 20th century might have been a bit of a freak, and that 20, 21st century um, could just be uh, a lot drier anyway. And we lose the glacier contribution, then that multiplies the problem. Is there anything we can do to stop this or slow it down? We can save glaciers in the Rockies, but only if we act quite soon. We actually have to get to something like (laughs) zero carbon dioxide into the atmosphere um, from fossil fuel burning. We have to get there something like 2040. You know, so you have to think of what the political processes that have to be set in motion to make anything like that possible. Yes, the politics are daunting. There are many out there who still doubt the science. And more often than that, it comes down to arguments that reining in carbon will hurt the economy. It's not like going back to the Stone Age. We see um, beautiful electric cars on the highways right now. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of um, ways to save energy. And we have... uh, Solar and wind. Hydroelectric. Yeah, yeah, solar, all this stuff to to think about. It's not like you have to burn stuff in order to have a civilization. Right. (laughs) Um, It's a kind of mark of uh, uncivilization, I think, to behave as we are right now. But there are reasons for optimism. Recently, Secretary of State John Kerry and President Obama, they were in the Arctic for a glacier conference. Well, I I think I got more optimistic recently. Um, We're not going to be able to stop the clock, but we can at least, um, yeah, slow it and start attending the tasks that we've been postponing for a long time. It does seem there's a lot of political will now. Maybe concrete action will be taken at the upcoming Paris climate talks this December, but victories might be tenuous if a new U.S. president is elected who's less convinced of the urgency or will only move at, quote, a glacial pace when the clock is really ticking. A glacial pace, right. The Vox family photographs suggest that maybe it's time to rethink that metaphor. It shows what can happen in such a short amount of time. If you ask Henry, though, I think he'd say it's about creating dialogue instead of preaching. You know, show, don't tell. Rather than to rant and rave about global change in the in the melting of the glaciers, is to simply lay the pictures out there. So I think it is true that a picture is worth more than a thousand words. And I took that position that people would look at it and get the message. To see some of the Vox family photos, visit our website at h2oradio.org. There you'll also find links to studies by Gary Clark at the University of British Columbia. Reporting from Banff, Alberta in the Canadian Rockies, I'm Franny Halperin, and you're listening to H2O Radio.